Do you know what's interesting about all these people? None of them are volunteering to off themselves. Bill, Bill Gates is an old guy. He's late 60s, I think. Is he offed himself? I don't think so. He's still flying around in a private jet telling us all how we need to reduce our carbon footprint. The carbon they want to reduce is you. You're the carbon they want to reduce. You know, I've spent my career taking on some of the cultural baddies, you know, some of the most prominent intellectuals in the world, some of them in public debates, some of them behind the scenes. And I've come to realize that ideas define everything that we do. With an academic degree, you're trained to be a researcher and writer to the point that it's annoying. I mean, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about books I've not read. I'm not talking about papers I've not read. Whether I agree with them or not actually isn't the point. Uh, there are quite a few books that I would read that I would say are actually evil books. Donald Trump, when he was in a divorce with his first wife, she said he has a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. I wish more people did. If the German people had bothered to read that book rather than just have it on their shelf, we might have avoided the Holocaust. If more people read the Quran, they'd be wiser to what Islam actually is, what they actually believe. If people bothered to read, as I have, the writings of Klaus Schwab and the various contributors to the World Economic Forum and the ideas that are driving the globalists, I read them because I want to understand their mentality. I cut out the middleman. I go straight to the ideology. Everything in your life is being defined by either your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. And each episode, we're gonna be digging into a different idea that appears in the culture. This is Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Taunton. Today, we're talking about the World Economic Forum. Don't know who they are? Oh, but you do, um, because they're driving a lot of the policies that you're seeing in Western Europe, in the United States. Guys like Bill Gates, he's a he's a member of the World Economic Forum. Uh, George Soros is a is a favorite son of the uh, the World Economic Forum. Perhaps you've heard the name Klaus Schwab, who is the the uh, the chairman, the sole chairman and founder of the World Economic Forum. I want to talk to you today a little bit about the ideas that are driving it. You might say this show, we call this, idea, this show Ideas Have Consequences. And in some sense, we're not just reacting to news, rather we're talking about the ideas behind the news, the things that are driving the news. And there are a boatload of ideas that are driving the World Economic Forum. And they are sinister ideas, but the people themselves don't think of themselves as sinister. Indeed, they think of themselves is uh, is very decent, good people who are doing what is the best for humanity. C.S. Lewis once made the observation that the worst kind of tyranny is that which is done for your own good. And it's because those kind of tyrants are individuals who tyrannize you with the approval of their consciences. They're individuals who reassure themselves that at the end of the day, what they're doing, even if it even if it caused a little bit of harm, uh, that it was ultimately for your own good. It's why a guy like Joseph Stalin, when asked by Lady Astor, when are you going to stop killing people? He said, when it's no longer necessary. He wasn't trying to be funny. Uh, it, there was no sense of irony. He simply meant, hey, to make the socialist, the Stalinist, the Marxist omelet, you got to break a few eggs. And this is the mentality of the World Economic Forum. But before we get to the forum itself, Let's talk a little bit about the ideas that are driving it. And those ideas are fundamentally godless. You must understand this. Fascism is, by definition, atheistic. Uh, socialism, Marxism, they are communism, they are, by definition, atheistic. I just responded to a guy on YouTube, you know, who said, oh, I stopped listening is the moment you said that communism is atheistic. <laughs> Have you read Marx? Are you aware that Stalin was an atheist? Are you aware that their ideology is an attempt to create utopia on earth? I love the way Dostoevsky 
Dostoevsky, the man right here. I love the way Dostoevsky put it. He said that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but he says, socialism is, is the rebuilding of the Tower of Babel, not for the effort of mounting from heaven to, excuse me, from earth to heaven, but to bring heaven down to earth. And he goes on to say that it is before all things, before it is an economic question, it is a spiritual question because it denies the very existence of the spiritual. Human beings in the socialist, Marxist, communist, fascist way of thinking are simply raw materials for building the utopian state. And this defines the World Economic Forum as well. But as I mentioned, atheism is a, is a major driving factor. You know, it's interesting. About 15 years ago, uh, you know, I discover a lot of people are familiar with my work, even if they don't know my name. And that is because I can play for them clips of some of the work we've done. And they go, oh, I watched that. I saw that. And I go, we're the ones who did it. Our work is a little bit like uh, movie music. You might not know who did it, but when you hear, Donna, 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 you, you know who did it. Yeah, I mean, you know what movie that's from. You know that's Jaws. I mean, and then you maybe discover that that's John Williams. Our work is a little bit like that. And that's because about 15 years ago, we decided to take on a group that called themselves the New Atheists, uh, sometimes referring to themselves as the, uh, you know, very pompously as the four horsemen of the counter-apocalypse. And these individuals were Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, and uh, Sam Harris who was, I think at the time, this upstart, as John Lennox put it, an upstart graduate student at Stanford, Uni uh, Stanford University. We decided to take these guys on because in the post 9-11 world, there was this spate of anti-God books that all became pouring out at basically the same, the same time. Um, Dawkins is the God delusion. Uh, Dennett's breaking the spell. Dennett is a cognitive scientist at uh, at Tufts University. Uh, Dawkins, a I think he by now certainly would be a professor emeritus at uh, Oxford University. Christopher Hitchens, his book was uh, God is Not Great, deliberately lowercase, How Religion Poisons Everything. Uh, he, Christopher Hitchens was a journalist. He is um, deceased now. And then Sam Harris's Letter to a, a Christian Nation. All of these books were atheistic to their core and atheistic to the point of proselytizing on behalf of atheism. I mean, they were about trying to make converts to atheism. And then to that, we could also add, um, you know, the bestseller of them all, a novel by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code was not making an intellectual argument for, um, you know, or even an atheistic argument in the traditional sense of atheism, but it was unquestionably attack on the the foundations of the West, which are a Judeo-Christian worldview. It was an attack on Christianity, that the Bible that we have isn't reliable, and that, you know, Constantine sort of, you know, rigged the, the whole outcome of what the Bible looks like. There were some 80 Gospels, and they were suppressed, and only four were included in the Bible. And, you know, this kind of Jesus had a wife, all this kind of nonsense, none of which is true. But we realized we have to address this issue. We need to step into this arena and address this issue. So we began challenging these prominent atheists um, to debates. And so I got my friend, Oxford University professor of mathematics and philosophy of science, John Lennox, to take on Richard Dawkins, which he did. And we arranged four debates, which he did with Dawkins. And then um, we, we, I debated Christopher Hitchens and I debated Daniel Dennett on Al Jazeera for an audience of 270 million people. Their whole global audience was, uh, was watching that. Um, Lennox debated Hitchens, um, a, a couple of times, I think at the Edinburgh International Festival in, uh, in Scotland and, uh, then one in, uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. The point is we were taking on, you know, all of these guys as often as we could. And I certainly have argued with Richard and continue to this very day to argue with Richard Dawkins behind the scenes, off the stage, uh, quite a lot in a way that I hope is friendly and, uh, and, and respectful and one that we both uh, find mutually uh, 
sharpening in, uh, in some way. But the point that I'm getting at here is that atheism, this kind of high-level academic atheism, started entering in to the culture, started bleeding into the culture. And a lot of my friends at that time were saying, you know, Larry, ah, you know, nobody's listening to these pointy-headed guys. Who cares? Who cares what, what some guy at Oxford is saying? What some nut job is saying at Princeton University? Peter Singer, arguably the most influential philosopher of the second half of the 20th century and beyond. Uh, Peter Singer, another guy that I know uh, reasonably well. We did a couple of debates with him. Who cares what these crackpots think? And I was trying to say to people, you do not understand that this is bleeding down into the culture. And it is because the atheists of a generation before, say somebody like uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare, weren't particularly winsome or influential. It's kind of obnoxious. She's the woman who you know, famously got prayer out of schools. But these guys came along with their, their English accents and their academic, high-powered academic degrees, and they were leading away a generation of young people. And I used to argue, particularly with Christopher Hitchens and with Richard Dawkins, that what we are seeing taking place in the culture right now, these are your ideological errors, meaning that guys like Dawkins, guys like Hitchens, those guys grew up in a, a Britain that, it, that had inhaled deeply of a Judeo-Christian worldview. Those guys had been to Sunday school, at least a little bit. They had been imbued with a, a Christian worldview, and it had penetrated them at least enough to affect their worldview to some extent, if not enough, to pierce their hearts and lead to conversion to the Christian faith. It had had a real impact on their thinking. But I said, you know, the guys that are coming after you, they're not going to have gone to Sunday school. They're not going to be people who have been influenced to the degree that you are by the Christian faith, and they're going to be prepared to follow their atheism to its logical conclusions. They're, they're like Peter Singer, who's the most consistent atheist that I've ever met. They're going to be willing to follow it all the way to where it goes, which is to say there's no ultimate meaning in life, other than that which you assign to yourself, which again has is no real meaning, no transcendent meaning. It's just kind of a fake meaning that you give yourself in order to feel better about the, this life. It means there's no life in the hereafter. There's no hope. There's no justice. There's no ultimate right and wrong. There is only what happens. And it means that if you're a genocidal maniac, who cares? No ultimate right and wrong. And um, it means a guy like Stalin or Mao got away with it. Um, there's no one in the next life to judge them for what they did. That's what it means. And once a culture absorbs that kind of ideology, atheism at its core, it's anything goes. And we're starting to see that in the culture now. Now, how does this relate to the World Economic Forum? Well, it relates to it in a very big way. And that is because the World Economic Forum in its current iteration, the World Economic Forum has moved beyond the debate over God's existence, the debate we were having 15 years ago, to a place where their whole premise, their whole worldview, just more or less assumes there is no God. And they're taking it to the next, and they're taking it to its logical conclusion. That's what they're doing. So while we were stalking this atheism through, you know, universities, public schools, the entertainment industry, and now into the corridors of power and policy, and by the way, healthcare, we're seeing it playing out in Canada's push on euthanasia. In the Netherlands, the push on euthanasia. We're seeing it in the kind of soft euthanasia of the uh, of Obamacare. We're seeing it where, and you can watch this, it's not conspiracy theory. And I want to say this at the front end. Uh, first of all, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I tend to uh, ascribe to Benjamin Franklin's view that three can keep a secret if two are dead. I think it's extremely hard to keep secrets. It's very... We all know this from personal experience. You share something with someone and you ask them not to share it with somebody else, and they do. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever told anybody? Of course it has. Have you ever shared anything with somebody that they went and told somebody else about and it proved injurious to you? 
because they did, because they weren't trustworthy. That, that lack of trustworthiness infects the entire human race. It infects the entire human race. So the idea that there is a massive global conspiracy against humanity, but only this cabal kind of knows about it, I don't buy into that. Conspiracies are, by definition, secret. What I'm talking about here that the World Economic Forum is doing is quite open. They're that arrogant. They're quite open with what they're doing. You can watch them saying it on YouTube. We will in this episode. You can hear their lectures. You can attend their lectures. Are there some things that they kind of, you know, maybe don't say quite as openly? Well, of course. And at their core, the World Economic Forum is about population control. They want to reduce the global population. And I will demonstrate that in this particular podcast. But that's the part they do say out loud, but they say it amidst a lot of other things that are very feel-good, and it's easy to lose that message amidst all the other things that they put out to kind of disguise it. And they use the word sustainability. That is a word you should be very wary of. Anytime you hear sustainability, economic sustainability, um, you know, development uh, sustainability, governmental sustainability, uh, agricultural sustainability, nothing good follows on the backside of that. The, this, the word sustainability always turns out to be fundamentally anti-human. And that is because the World Economic Forum is anti-human. Atheism, taken to its logical conclusions, is anti-human. It's satanic. You say, I don't believe in Satan. James 2.19 says, you do well. <laughs> The demons believe in shudder. <laughs> you know, I, you, you don't believe in God? You do well. The demons believe in shudder. I love the way one movie, uh, what was that old movie with Keanu Reeves years ago? Yeah, the movie Constantine. And it, it was in the commercial. I never saw the movie, but the commercial, somebody says, I don't, I, don't believe, I don't believe in the devil. I don't believe in Satan. And the reply is, he, he believes in you. <laughs> it's a good line. It's a good line. Whether or not you believe in the devil, the devil, he believes in you. And he is in on the conspiracy against humanity. So we have tracked this atheism to its current residence, which finds expression in the Marxism and the fascism that is now engulfing much of the Western world, the two of them. And we'll discuss these uh, a little bit. And it is because a lot of these World Economic Forum types, they really, they don't believe in human perfectibility. They believe in societal perfectibility. There's a slight difference between those two. They recognize that human beings are flawed. Now, they, they think they're flawed for a different reason. They don't think it because of, you know, the fall, uh, as we believe, as I believe as a Christian from, you know, from uh, the Genesis account of creation. And uh, the, the polluting of the human spirit from Adam all the way down to now. They just believe that human beings are, let's say, I remember how uh, Richard Dawkins put this to me in his home some years ago. I said, do you believe in evil? And he says, I believe in genetic predispositions. So he's rejecting the premise that there's an ultimate right and wrong. There's only genetic predispositions. And those predispositions are divided into two categories, those dispositions that we like and those dispositions that we don't like, that we consider to be antisocial and therefore things to be eradicated. And uh, a people who believe in that, that's, a, that's an evil philosophy because it leads you to believe that we can separate out the evil people and destroy them. We're left off with a better humanity. This is what drove Stalin. It's what drove Adolf Hitler. Just separate out the bad people and destroy them. George Bernard Shaw, who was a hard... Somehow, George Bernard Shaw has managed to escape this. Uh, he, he shouldn't. He was an awful hater of mankind. I don't care if you like Pygmalion, um, My Fair Lady. Guy, guy was given an Academy Award as well as a Nobel Prize. Nobel Prize for literature, I believe it was. Let's give them both. And he got absolutely hated human beings. After a visit to Stalinist Russia in, I think, 1931, he came back and uh, um, talked about how wonderful 
Stalin's Russia was. It was a utopia, he said. And uh, some smarter people in the press said, yeah, but isn't he killing a lot of people? And Shaw's remark in reply was this, yes, but he's killing the right people. He's killing the right people. He went on and on in an essay about, you know, the importance of the use of the gas chambers to get rid of people that really just are useless. So this is the thinking. And this brings us to, you know, what's going on with the World Economic Forum. Now, let, let me give you a clear picture of what was happening, some historical context at the time of the creation of the World Economic Forum. So the World Economic Forum itself was founded in 1971. But why? Why was it founded? What was going on at that time? Well, I would say that between, oh, about a 10-year period, between about 65 and 75, there was an obsession with the global population, that the population was getting out of control. And one of the contributors to that was a massive bestseller by Paul Ehrlich, 1968, called The Population Bomb. Now, Ehrlich has, it has been, he's still alive and he's still pushing this crap. He has been demonstrated to be wrong over the decades many times. In fact, he predicted that within the next decade of the publication of that book, so by 1978, that we would see millions of people die from famine. Um, may, he may have even said billions. Billy, he would say that a, 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 a huge chunk of the global population would die as a result of famine because we had gone beyond, remember the magic word, sustainability. I remember when I was being taught this in university, the term was carrying capacity, that the earth had exceeded its carrying capacity. We no longer had the ability. The earth just simply couldn't be squeezed anymore for resources to feed a global population to sustain a global population. So this guy was pushing this crap. In 1968, he said, this is what's going to happen. And it, it affected everybody's thinking in you know, higher up in academic circles. Book was a massive bestseller. The group was founded. This is, group is at the center of a lot of conspiracy theories. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to go and look for the absurd online when the truth is staring you in the face. I see this all the time where people will say the most outrageous things. Klaus Schwab's father was a, you know, was Adolf Hitler, you know, or something like So what? I don't hold that against Klaus Schwab. What I hold against Klaus Schwab is what Klaus Schwab has done, not what his father has done. And as a Christian, I don't believe you're judged by the sins or for that matter, by the great deeds of your parents or your grandparents or whoever. You rise and fall on your own merits. We believe that. We believe that as Americans. I believe that as a Christian. I won't be judged for the sins of someone else. I'm judged for my own. We each, as the Apostle Paul says, we each carry our own weight. You see. So, but this ideology, this concern over population control had infected the thinking of academic elites. And so they were buying into this in a big way. And the Club of Rome comes along. This is a group that is established at Rome, which oddly now is based in Zurich. So they should be called the Club of Zurich. But anyway, but they were originally founded in, uh, in Rome. And it, it was a group of about 25 people, the goal of it becoming about 60 people. But I think they're north of 100 members now. But they're mostly individuals who are think tankish types. They're academics. They're... Um, you know, businessmen, they are influential people who gather together for the purpose of bettering mankind. That's their stated goal, the Club of Rome. So this is a think tank, a vastly influential think tank. And they produce a little paper. You can read it. You can find it online. I think I downloaded it from Princeton University. It is a, um, a paper that they produced in 1970 that's called The Predicament of Mankind. And it's, I'd say the most important part of the paper is about 33, 34 pages long. It's actually not particularly well written. You would think, you would think these think tanks would go and hire someone like me, you know, a social scientist, a professional writer to improve upon 
the writing of these natural scientists who don't write particularly well and it actually has typographical errors and things like this in it. They they don't make the they don't make it particularly easy to read. Maybe that's by design. I don't know. But the predicament of mankind was a proposal in which the Club of Rome was saying, look, we have a global crisis. And the global crisis is overpopulation. Read what Paul Ehrlich said in the population bomb. We're in trouble. What are we going to do? So they said, rather than doing what academics normally do and just producing a paper that's full of theories and suggestions, let's actually create an executive committee that acts on the recommendations of the think tank. And so they said, we need to create, here's the problem, overpopulation. They stated there were other problems as well, but at the root of them was overpopulation. At the root of them all, sustainability, agriculturally, you know, food supply, all this kind of stuff, uh, a drain on resources, um, the uh, destruction of the environment, all of this dealt with overpopulation. And by that, I mean human overpopulation. They weren't talking about exterminating the roach population. There are far too many lemmings. We need to get rid of them. No, it was the human population they wanted to reduce. So they said, we need to create basically a... Um, an executive arm, and we'll call it the World Forum. Next year, Klaus Schwab, a German engineer, he founded the what he called at the time the World Forum, but he would eventually change the name to the World Economic Forum. And the World Economic Forum was created with the intention that it would act upon the think tank's recommendations. Now, you have to think about this just a little bit. How arrogant must you be to think that it is your job to act on behalf of the whole of humanity without being elected to so much as dog catcher? These are not elected individuals. At the time of his founding, the World Economic Forum wasn't particularly influential. Now it is. I was at this year's World Economic Forum meeting because I have learned from I have learned from vast experience that there just simply is no substitute for being there. If you have attended um, football games, you know this is true. If you've attended any sporting event, a soccer game, a baseball game, doesn't matter. You know that being there, there's a lot you see and that you take in that you miss if you're on television. When you're there, you see an awful lot of stuff. And some of the stuff you didn't see, you can go and watch later because you recorded it on, on your your TV, on your DVR. The World Economic Forum is like that. More than 70% of the presentations, it's a the World Economic Forum's annual meeting, which takes place in Davos, Switzerland. Uh, it's a series of, of um, presentations by experts in a variety of fields. Those fields might be uh, artificial intelligence, which has become a major theme of the World Economic Forum. It might be agricultural sustainability, population sustainability. It might be on, um, oh, this year's theme was, is, does anything sound less threatening than their theme? Finding unity in a fragmented world. It's, it's boring, actually. It's meant to bore you. It's meant to lull you to sleep so you're not paying attention to what they're really about. And they are anti-human to their core. Another term you should be very wary of is for the common good. And another one that they use is um, for the environment or for the sake of the planet. Those are all anti-human phrases. That is to say they are freighted with anti-human meaning if you've ever seen the way they're employed elsewhere. This episode is sponsored by Tome, where successful people grow. Tome produces world-class courses that are designed to help you flourish. Their courses are taught by expert speakers, influencers, business leaders, entrepreneurs, athletes, artists, doctors, theologians, and faith leaders. They're real people with years of experience in their fields who bring their best knowledge to each course. Tome is launching a brand new product that will elevate your learning experience on June 13th. 
to register for the upcoming launch, go to launch.tomeapp.com and enter my code, Larry T, for some exclusive access to amazing content. This year's, this year's World Economic Forum, there were more than 50 heads of state there, 50 heads of state more than 115 billionaires, and more than 600 CEOs of major corporations. If you count me, I'm executive director of the Fixed Point Foundation, 601. But the point being that major multi-billion dollar corporations that are involved in this. And then there are peons like me who attended, which are another 2,700 individuals. And so I decided I needed to be there. I wanted to mingle among the 2,700 others. I wanted to see what those people are about. Who are they? And um, my strategy was this. I realized that, uh, listen, I think it's between twenty-five dollars and $55,000 to attend the plenary sessions. I don't have that. I can't go to that. Even if I did, I wouldn't pay it. As I said, I can watch that online. No, what I wanted to do was to just mingle among the attendees. And uh, so I went to a coffee shop that had about three tables. And exactly what I thought was going to happen happened. And that is between the sessions, people pour out and they're looking for a bite to eat and a cup of coffee. And so 50 people pile into this place <laughs> Nowhere to sit except the three tables. I'm sitting at one table deliberately by myself and not moving. I am not moving for anybody. So people began asking, hey, can I sit at your table? And I said, yeah, sure, sit down. And by the way, attendees at the World Economic Forum, they don't say the WEF or even the World Economic Forum. They say the WEF. I call it the WEF. So I just pretended to be a WEFer. I was just a WEFer. And the result was people would talk about themselves and they couldn't wait to tell me how important they were, why they were there and with what important personage they were associated. I'm the translator for the president of Axe. I am the bodyguard for why. I am the uh, in chief administrator uh, for thus and such company. I'm CEO of X. I am here as a presenter on, they love to tell you that. And because they just assume that I'm a weffer like everybody else, um, they talk quite openly. And initially, they begin by using all the language of the WEF, which is, oh, I, I'd say, you know, what brings you here? Oh, well, I'm trying to find unity in a fragmented world. And we're trying to improve the world and we're trying to make things better for humanity and da, 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 da. And then I would push back just slightly because I don't want to give myself away. I say, yeah, but what do you think about the World Economic Forum's overall goal of um, reducing the global population by roughly 6 billion people? Well, we, we need to do it. We're moving beyond, and you know what the word is? Sustainability. They would begin talking like this. You know, we should take a second here. You know what I want to pull up right now so that people will know that I am not joking. Let's pull up. Let's pull up Dr. Dennis Meadows. Dr. Dennis Meadows, like Bill, and by the way, you can find this with Bill Gates. Bill Gates is a World Economic Forum member. And he is a true believer, by the way, in all this stuff. You can find Bill Gates giving a TED Talk on the need to reduce the global population. Now, he does it. He doesn't. To hear these guys talk about population problems is like listening to a baseball fan talk about batting averages. They never say things. They never use words like, say, kill. <laughs> they never say anything as, as nakedly as that. We need to kill. We need to get rid of. I know that there's a conspiracy theory. It's not true. That supposedly comes from the books of Klaus Schwab that says where Klaus Schwab supposedly said we need to rid the world of, quote, useless eaters. Ladies and gentlemen, I've read Klaus Schwab's books. This one published in 2016, The, uh, the Fourth Industrial Revolution. This one, COVID-19, The Great Reset, published in 2020, didn't the pandemic begin in 2020? This is June 2020. And this one right here, The Great Narrative, 
published by Schwab in 2022, so last year. Schwab never uses that phrase. In fact, if you were reading it, you would think this reads like a TV manual. Looks like a TV manual. I mean, it's not exactly the most beautiful looking book. It's self-published. It is published by the World Economic Forum themselves. Looks like you had this done at Kinko's. And it reads about as interesting as if it just came from Kinko's. He's very careful in the language he uses. The word they use repeatedly is sustainability. We have moved beyond sustainability. The earth is exceeding its sustainability. Our population is not sustainable. This is the way they talk. So people would begin to explain to me like they were explaining to an errant child why the global population needs to be reduced. And this brings us to Dr. Dennis Meadows. Dennis Meadows, like um, Bill Gates, he is a, uh, he's a World Economic Forum Agenda Contributor. That's, that's his title, World Economic Forum Agenda Contributor. He's the guy who wrote one of the very influential books that led to kind of the mission of the World Economic Forum. It's a book called Limits to Growth, 30 million copies. And you're going, oh, wow, that's like Da Vinci Code era. That's like, that's like um, uh, Pelican Brief kind of numbers. But it wasn't normal people. That is to say, it wasn't your average person who was buying this book. I, frankly, I don't think it sold 30 million copies. That's the number they give. I think it was distributed to that many people, which is a different thing. But anyway, Dennis Meadows, one of four authors of this book. He's an MIT PhD, um, University of New Hampshire, I think. S systems analyst. He's not really a scientist. But listen to what this guy says here in this, in, in this little video. In one way or another, we are so far, globally, we are so far above the population and the consumption levels, which can be supported by this planet, that I know in one way or another it's going to come back down. So I don't hope to avoid that. Uh, I hope that it can occur in a, a, a civil way, I, I, and I mean civil in a, in a special way, I, peaceful. <laughs> Did you catch that? <laughs> so Dennis Meadows is here saying, yeah, we need to reduce the global population by billions. But hey, I really hope this can be done in a civil way, in a peaceful way. It's, a, it's astonishing the way these people talk. Peace doesn't mean uh, that everybody's happy, but it means that conflict isn't solved through violence, through, through force, uh, but rather in other ways. And so uh, that's what I hope for. Uh, that we can, I mean, the planet can support something like a billion people, maybe two billion, depending on how, We're now at eight. And how much material consumption you want to have. If you want more liberty and more consumption, you have to have fewer people. And conversely, you can have more people. I mean, we could even have eight or nine billion probably if we have a very strong dictatorship, which is smart. It's, unfortunately, you never have smart dictatorships. They're always stupid. So, but if you had a smart dictatorship and a low standard of living, you can have it. But, but we want to have freedom and we want to have a high sentence. So we're going to have a billion people. And we're now at seven, so we have to get back down. I hope that this can be slow, relatively slow, and that it can be done in a way which is relatively equal. Uh, you know, so that people share uh, the experience and you don't have a few rich... Share the experience. ...trying to force everybody else to, to deal with it. So those are my hopes. Like going to Disney. These are pretty pessimistic hopes, you know, but I mean, that's, that's what lies ahead. <laughs> that's astonishing. So here he says, Dennis Meadows comes off as just your regular, normal guy who lives next door, who you discover wants to rid the planet of 7 billion people. That 
that interview appears to be about a year old. And we have eclipsed the 8 billion mark on the planet. And yet there are countries in, in the world that are facing economic, excuse me, um, population implosion. Japan, the United States is facing it. Western Europe, the whole of Western Europe, the birth rates are not able to keep up with the death rates. In other words, the replacements aren't keeping up. But here's a guy who says, gosh, I sure hope that we can, be, we can do it in a, in a sustainable way. And then you hear the absolute contempt for democracy, for the will of the people. This is the way these people think. They, they do not believe that you deserve a voice in this. Did you hear him voice his preference for dictatorship? Smart dictatorship, but it's preferable. It's what we need. This you have a glimpse right there. Now, just so you know, again, this isn't this isn't the. I mean, they are lunatic fringe in the sense that they this this is nuts, but this isn't the lunatic fringe in terms of his influence. Dennis Meadows has had extraordinary influence on the thinking of global elitists. And let's call them elitists. We mean people who think they're better than you. To call them elites is kind of a compliment. They don't deserve that. These, these smug bastards, you need to call them out for what they are. They are elitists. That's who they are. I said to you early on in this show, I was telling you that something was happening between roughly 65 and 75 that had to do with population. That is a kind of a global hysteria over population. And it began with um, the population bomb, Paul Ehrlich's book in 1968, then the predicament of mankind, which came in uh, 1970. And then 1972 was Dennis Meadows' book, co-authored with three others. Who they are, doesn't matter. You can, you can look it up. Uh, a book called Limits to Growth. But there's one more that you can find, and you can find it on the U.S. government's, a .gov address. The Kissinger Report, NSSM 200, known, yeah, you see, the infamous Kissinger Report. And in the Kissinger Report, this is 1972, this one is the most naked of them all, and it is because it was published... as a private memo to the president of the United States. The only reason we see it now is because the Freedom of Information Act brought it out. And now we see it. And Kissinger is writing to the president of the United States and saying, we have a global population problem. And his recommend recommendations are kind of startlingly Nazi. His recommendations were sterilization, mostly in the third world, and a planned parenthood like global organization that reduced populations in the third world because he said the freedom of the United States is at stake. Our, our sustainability is at stake because these people are going to start crashing across our borders. Now, we are seeing that right now, but that isn't due to a population explosion. That's due to the fact that we have Marxist regimes in South America <laughs> that are destroying economies. I know because I've been there. I've been in several of them. Just in the last two years, three years maybe, we have seen Brazil fall to Marxists via dubious means. Venezuela fell to Marxists. Peru has fallen to Marxists. Chile, Chile has fallen to Marxists. Stunningly, the most stable democracy in South America has fallen to Marxists. And Honduras, all of those countries have fallen. Did I mention Colombia. Colombia is another one, which has also fallen to Marxists. And they are destroying economies, and those people are fleeing. You know what CNN said the reason was for these millions of people crossing our southern border? They said it was due to climate change. It's complete nonsense. Complete nonsense. This has nothing to do with climate change. It has everything to do with the very policies that these people are trying to import into the United States that they're pushing. But Kissinger was pushing this. We have, a, we, have a we have a population problem, and we need to off a lot of people. You can read this report online. It's easily, easily downloadable. So again, before you say this is conspiracy theory, 
Conspiracies are, by definition, private. None of this stuff is private. It is out in the open. Bill Gates is giving lectures on it. Klaus Schwab is talking about it. The World Economic Forum is talking about it. Uh, Paul Ehrlich was talking about it. Henry Kissinger was talking about it. And guess who Henry Kissinger's student was at, the, at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government? Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab. So you begin to connect the dots. You see what's going on. So all of this hysteria, Nixon, after reading the Kissinger report, created, I've forgotten the name of it. It was like the, the Office of Population Sustainability or something like that. It's still in existence. The Office of Population. It's, it's a government office that still exists. And it was created by Nixon, or rather with Nixon's recommendation, and then he fell into Watergate and all that stuff. And then it became Gerald Ford who signed off on Kissinger's recommendations. These all very real things. What you end up with with these kind of people, the way I would, would summarize what the World Economic Forum is, is it's like the HOA from hell. The Homeowners Association from Hell, I was talking to a guy yesterday who was complaining about his homeowners association. If you know anything about homeowners association, it is a weird thing that I've observed in universities. I have observed in, in schools, public and private, and that I observe in law practices, medical practices, and with HOAs. And that is, I don't care if only 10% of your body, your business or homeowners or whatever it is, is made up of radical leftists, they're going to end up running it. And my theory for that is this. It's because conservatives by nature don't want to tell other people what to do. I have no interest in running an HOA, zero. But it's what happens with homeowners associations. They end up in charge and they, these are individuals both in my experience in HOAs, typically, and definitely with the World Economic Forum, they are individuals who cannot bear the thought that someone somewhere is free. That someone somewhere, their grass might be too high. They might be eating beef. They might be watching a, a program that isn't approved by the alphabet mafia. They might be praying. They might be thinking things and doing things that you didn't approve of. Now, the conservative mindset is to say, well, live and let live. You just stay in your lane and I'll stay in mine. Fine. That was the conservative attitude, by the way, about homosexuality. And all these things that we were told early on that these were people who deserved rights. What you do in your home and in private, don't care about. Not peeking in your windows. If uh, If you want to get together with your... You know, some guy wants to get together and have an orgy with a bunch of other guys. I'm not looking in your windows. But now you're bringing it into the public space. Now you're trying to force it on everyone else. And this is what the World Economic Forum is. The World Economic Forum is the HOA from hell. They are the individuals not elected. Now, it's not to say that these 50 heads of state aren't elected. Many of them are. But rather, they weren't elected to be a part of a governing body that then issued policies that were then imposed on people without their approval. And that's what's happening. So what you see happening with the, the farmers in the Netherlands, um, where they are being put out of business quite literally because cattle emissions Same thing. You're starting to hear those policies. There's this creeping discussion in this direction. Bill Gates keeps talking about it. He's obsessed with it. That cow flatulence, cow farts, are going to be the end of us all. I'm more concerned with the, the mouth farting that is coming from the World Economic Forum types. We're just vomiting out hatred for humanity. I'm sick of it. That's who these individuals are. In 1991, the first global revolution was published by the Club of Rome. And remember, the Club of Rome has ties 
with the World Economic Forum. They gave rise to the World Economic Forum. Now, I've read it. These are books I've read. So when I tell you that Useless Eaters is not in any of these books, I know that because I've read them. I ordered The First Global Revolution, which is, hasn't been published, to my knowledge, as an actual book. You can only order it as like loose-leaf paper. So I ordered it off of Amazon, and I got it, and I poured through the entire thing through a weekend, making a careful note. And you know one of the, one of the phrases, like sustainability, that appears there? Social justice. 1991. Started creeping into the American conscience in about the last decade, but they were already using it there. That's kind of my point about atheism is that what you saw is academic discussions that were not happening in your coffee shop. They weren't taking place in your church or at the time in your public schools, maybe not even in your universities. I knew that stuff was going to creep down. It was going to trickle down into all of those spaces. And now it has in a very, very big way. And that's why it has to be had to be, we felt that it had to be fought 15 years ago when we were taking these guys on on places like Al Jazeera, CNN, um, NPR, BBC, and so on. We were taking them on. And it's because it is easier to dam a, a river upstream, be it a real river or an ideological one, uh, to put it, <laughs> to put it in the uh, you know the the vernacular, Barney Five put it very well. Nip it in the bud. Nip it in the bud. It's easier to dam a river upstream, and these ideological um, ideas, you know, all these ideas were 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 flowing downhill, but as yet they hadn't gained the the kind of momentum that we're seeing now. And then, you know, in 2010, on the heels of the, uh, the, the recession of 2007, 2008, you know, the hit in that period, a guy by the name of Richard Florida began speaking of how that economic downturn was changing the culture, was changing the way people live their lives. And he called it the Great Reset. He referred to the aftermath of that economic catastrophe he called it the Great Reset, and Klaus Schwab lifted the phrase and has used it um, for his own purposes. Now, in the first global revolution, this is what it says, which is astonishing. And you have to bear in mind, this: when you hear this, you will know this wasn't intended for general audiences. This was intended, again, to be read you know, by other academics, by people who shared their worldview. And they said, look, you know, we, we're evaluating where we've been since the predicament of mankind came out in 1970. Here we are 21 years later. Doesn't feel like we're making a lot of progress. And here's our recommendation. And they say this, and I quote, in searching for a new enemy to unite us, because they say, look, we have to have a common enemy. The only way we are going to unite humanity to get human beings to go along with our recommendations on population and every other area of human life. They're talking about revamping, not just reducing the global population, but governments, you name it, food supplies. They want to change it all. In searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. It's an incredible statement. They're acknowledging right there that we are kind of fudging the numbers. We're exaggerating the threat, and we're doing it to try to get people to dance to our tune. And then they say the real enemy then is humanity itself. Let me repeat that. In searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine and the like would fit the bill. The real enemy then is humanity itself. So I've been telling you all along that the World Economic Forum and all the ideas that animate it, which come from you know, things like the population, uh, a bomb, uh, the uh, Club of Rome, the predicament of mankind, the first global revolution, uh, the, the Nixon report, all of this stuff, they're fundamentally anti-human. And by the way, you know what else happened in the 1970s is fundamentally anti-human in this period of time that's about population control? Roe v. Wade, 1973, right back in the middle of the period that I'm talking about. This is what they're pushing. 
And this idea of uniting humanity around a fake or exaggerated global problem, it is Plato's noble lie. Comes straight out of the Republic. Plato's Republic, where Plato says, uh, or his characters, you know, say that uh, we need a noble eye. One that is good enough to fool even the rulers themselves. But if not them, then the population, that people would believe it and would unite behind it. It's called the noble lie. And behind it all is this idea that the global population needs to be reduced. That part they believe. They don't believe the, the exaggeration over environmental concerns. They don't believe that part. They do believe the global population needs to be reduced right away. And they are fundamentally, in addition to being anti-human, anti-democratic, they don't think that you deserve a say in all of this. Think about this from the standpoint of the founders of the United States. They believed that there was a kind of fundamental decency in the will of the people. And that if a people in great numbers were themselves evil, then certainly individually they were too. And hence the reason, they because they were inspired by a Judeo-Christian worldview, they believed in checks and balances, these kinds of things. Uh, so they, 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 they felt that the, the will of the people would be preferable to the will of a tyrant. But you heard Dennis Meadows saying, no, we need, we need a dictatorship. I mean, a nice one. And then he goes on to say, you know, there never have been any. They're all bad, but I'm sure we could create one now. <laughs> Genocides come as a result of this, this is the way these people think. But that's not the way the world, economic, what the world Economic Forum believes. They do not believe in the will of the people. They, and, and that is, by the way, is what you're seeing. You know, one of the podcasts we've been discussing what ESG is. ESG uh, environmental, social, and corporate governments, the governance, this, this uh, corporate social credit system that is being applied to companies from Coca-Cola to Target to, to you name it, they're all being judged according to its criteria. And it's, it's far leftist in every respect. It is far leftist. What, they, what ESG does is ESG tells corporate heads, ignore your customers and your shareholders. Ignore what they want. It's stakeholder capitalism, not shareholder capitalism. It's not consumer capitalism. It's a bunch of ideologues who are saying, I know your, your constituents want widgets, but we're telling you to make gay flags. And that's what you should do. Yeah, but we'll lose billions. We don't care. Do it. They tell them to ignore the will of the people. In the same way, a lot of people are asking, how is it that we're seeing politicians in democratic countries ignoring the will of their own constituents, utterly ignoring them, like they don't even matter? We are now seeing American politicians behave in a way we've never seen in our entire history, where you have a president of the United States in Joe Biden, who is so deeply corrupt, but who clearly, in spite of all the unity talk, ignores the will of the people. Most Americans want the borders closed. They want the borders closed. Do you realize we have spent, they say we can't afford a border wall. The White House's own website says we cannot afford the, a, a border wall. We have sent more money to Ukraine than we could build three border walls with the money that we've sent to Ukraine. Certainly two. We have sent roughly in goods and in hard currency upwards of $200 billion to Ukraine. Border wall will cost nowhere near that. Nowhere near that. But that is what they're pushing. They're ignoring the will of the people, saying, we will make you have electric cars. We're going to get rid of your gas stoves. We're going to... Um, you know, give money to illegal immigrants. We're going to allow people to vote who shouldn't be voting. We're going to impose upon you 
policies that we know you hate, but it is for your own good. This is World Economic Forum driven this kind of stuff. Joe Biden at the World Economic Forum before he became president of the United States, he uh, attended the World Economic Forum and he uh, he said that they were you know on board with the the WEF. John Kerry said that the the Biden administration is quote devoted to the World Economic Forum agenda. And I've already told you what that agenda is. That agenda is fundamentally anti-human. It is anti-Christian. It is atheistic to its core. I'll leave you with this. And by the way, I should tell you that everything that I'm discussing about the World Economic Forum, you can find, I wrote a series for Daily Wire that is called The Great Jet Set. It is called The Great Jet Set. And uh, it is about the World Economic Forum. It's a four-part series. It was very popular. Uh, it is, don't tell anybody, but it is now on my website at LarryAlexTaunton.com. That's LarryAlexTaunton, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com for free because Daily Wire has it behind a paywall. I don't have a paywall at LarryAlexTaunton.com. And uh, you can find it there. I want to leave you with this story. Years ago, I was reading the minutes of the Nuremberg trials, you know, the trials of the Nazi war criminals at the end of World War II, which took place in Nuremberg, Germany. And um, that led me to read the minutes of the interrogations. The interrogations, of course, weren't public, but they're American prosecutors who are interviewing these war criminals and, you know, taking depositions and this kind of thing. And uh, anyway, there are there's, there's one exchange that I found very, very interesting, and it is with Rudolf Hess, not to be confused with Rudolf Hess, who was a close intimate of Adolf Hitler and flew to Scotland. Um, no, this was the, uh, the camp commandant of Auschwitz. Auschwitz, one of the many concentration camps I've been there, been there a couple of times, I think, in Poland, where roughly a million Jews were exterminated. And it's a conversation um, at the same time, the interrogations are taking place with Hess, the camp commandant of Auschwitz, and Otto Moll. Otto Moll was one of the guys who was responsible for the actual executions, overseeing the executions at Auschwitz. And both men in those interrogations see themselves as good guys. That comes through. They see themselves as good guys, and they talk about the extermination of the Jews as an unfortunate thing that had to be done. Hess, for instance, trying to get the sympathy of the interrogators, saying things like, you know, I did, you know, I had, I already told you I had one nervous breakdown. I had another one. I mean, this work was hard. It was difficult. Nobody likes killing babies. Nobody likes killing people. Nobody wants to do that. And Mole kind of says the same thing. I mean, this is hard work. It's bad. It's rough. You don't sense any contrition. Rather, what you sense is that they saw themselves as individuals who were like sin eaters. Sin eaters. It was like they were taking on the sins of the world. You, they're 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 like they're like the the, the people in you know in 1984. They're the individuals, no, excuse me, in Huxley's Brave New World. They're more like them. They're the individuals who know the truth, but they keep everyone else kind of happy on Soma while they themselves make the hard choices for humanity. And they're the ones who bear the burden of it all. And that's the way Hess sounds. That's the way Maul sounds. It's terrible having to kill these people. It had to be done. That's the way the World Economic Forum sounds. That's the way Dennis Meadows, when I hear that interview with Dennis Meadows, I think of Otto Moll. I think of Rudolf Hess and I go, oh wow, there are people like that still walking around on planet Earth who say, I hope it can be done humanely, peacefully. I hope it can be done with civility. Do you know what's interesting about all these people? None of them are volunteering to off themselves. Bill, Bill Gates is an old guy. He's the late 60s, I think. 
Is he offed himself? I don't think so. He's still flying around in a private jet telling us all how we need to reduce our carbon footprint. The carbon they want to reduce is you. You're the carbon they want to reduce. And that's why the World Economic Forum is at core fascist. I hear people say that it's Marxist. It's not Marxist. By definition, you cannot be a billionaire and a Marxist. You cannot. They are fascist. They believe in the strict regimentation of the economy for war against you. That's what ESG is. ESG is about the weaponizing of the economy against the consumer, against populists, which is just a way of saying ordinary people.